Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Ruth Badger. Ruth is the Managing Director of both Ruth Badger Consultancy based in Greater Manchester and also Everything Tech Limited. Ruth, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, even if I am sat in a room on my own. <laughs> oh, I'm very much um, in the same boat um, as well. It's um, a very, very strange times. Now, um, as I say, the purpose um, of this podcast series, Ruth, is um, to really gather a variety of different perspectives on uh, leadership as a whole. So first and foremost, what I'd like to understand is what that word leader actually means to you. Well, a leader to me is first and foremost, setting an example. So really creating a passion and an environment to ensure that you believe in who you're following. Um, I've had some amazing mentors who have also been very good leaders. And really, I think the key thing that they've done for me is really show me the way to go, instill trust. So I believe in almost the destiny that I'm sort of going to and create an area of safety, safety that I can be pushed and safety that you can push and also be respected and listened to. I think that's absolutely right. And um, what's also quite um, important to remember as well is that leadership is really no more important than it is now, is it? There's that leadership in government yeah. is required, leadership yeah. in business, especially as we're trying to get through this present situation with COVID-19 and the whole furor surrounding that. Well, I think that's massive. I mean, there's two real big factors for me, one within my own business, um, which is if I didn't know what to do and everybody looks at a leader you know very very I always think that leaders are very selfless and it took me quite a while to get used to that obviously I'm very well known for being a salesperson and being a very good operator at whatever I was doing but the moment I become a leader people stop sort of championing you it's almost being you know you put everybody else before yourself and in this situation that is massively important because I know a lot of people think about what they're going to be doing. But for me, the first thing I needed to do is, first of all, work out what was going to happen in my business. And second of all, ensure that everybody within my business had a different level of care. At a government level, leadership needs to be stronger now than it's ever been. And I think that when uh, Boris became poorly, as much as I'm not Mm. a big fan of politicians on the whole uh, at all, because, you know, my political views I'll keep out of this, but even I sat back and thought, wow, who's going to take control here? And when you saw Dominic Rab stand up there, you actually thought, come on, how much conviction and how much, you know, how much of a decision maker ability have you actually got? So I think now good leaders will thrive. You know, my team feels safe. They understand what our plan is. We work in literally two to three weeks in advance to protect people. And actually, I'm starting to think about the next six months to 12 months to when we come out of this. And that's that's a massive part of being a leader is that strategic thinking, in my opinion. Exactly. And at times of crisis, um, you're often, as the leader, the one that everybody's looking to for answers. And it's really at that time that you recognise your own limitations, isn't it? Because sometimes you don't have the answer to everything. And that can come with an awful amount of pressure. It does. I mean, I think one of the most important traits of a leader is communication. You know, the one thing that I have always done very well is communicated because when you go silent, and I don't know if you remember, but when the pandemic actually kicked off and they didn't do the news briefings, um, everybody was literally shouting and crying out for information. And one of the things that I've done, I mean, I've furloughed staff in my IT business, 
And the one thing that I've done from the beginning is actually communicate. So I decided that we're going into lockdown early doors. Um, so I put everybody on home base working. I communicated that. I've done well-being pieces, which isn't something that I would normally do in a business environment. And um, well-being is important, but I wouldn't be, you know, writing funny emails or WhatsApping my staff, uh, you know, on a Friday night to check that everybody's okay. And I think that's a massive part of this is actually giving your staff the reassurance and actually showing that leadership trait um, that you've got confidence. And we're not all, you know, if loads of people ask stupid questions none of us have got um, and this actually proves it more than anything else you know if we talk about our plans I've got a 2020 strategy for myself personally and also the businesses but it's absolutely irrelevant and one of the key things is to communicate but actually to have the ability to make that decision and I think that's something that is really prevalent now and that's something that I'm going to be looking for from the government within the next sort of week to two weeks on that decision maker ability to how we're actually going to come out of this lockdown position. Exactly right. Um, it's important um, as well um, in that decision making process to strike um, a very delicate balance between being proactive and having plans in place and also being able to be reactive yeah. as well, because with changing yeah. guidelines and circumstances, sometimes things can often have to change last minute. Quick decisions have to be made, but making them in a measured way, that's so important. Yeah. But that's a crucial part of business leadership for me. You know, everybody talks about business strategies and business plans. It's very important to have a framework of where you're going. But it's very, very important not to be so rigid that you have to follow it to the law. Being proactive is part of any leadership. You know, having uh, been an optimist is part of being a leader, but also being a realist. And one of the things that is important at this present time for me is actually, and it's the first time I've probably ever thought about it in this way because I'm incredibly revenue, gener- you know, revenue driven. But it's about revenue versus health, and one of the things that I have to do as a leader, you know, I don't particularly. I've got, I've got a daughter. I've got an eight-month-old daughter. I've got parents who are in their sixties. I've got all these different factors which normally wouldn't be brought into a work situation, but actually that is almost steering my decision making so when we reopen all of my high risk staff because I'm already you know I already assessed them before we went into this and they'll be home based working and all of the staff that actually want to come into the office because you know mental health is a big thing which I'm aware of I employ a lot of um young techs who are predominantly male between the ages of sort of 22 and 30. And one of the things that has been really at the forefront of my mind all the way through this is the mental health. So when when I make the decision to who I'll be bringing back and who I won't, revenue won't actually be at the top of the list. Obviously, I did my business planning very well, but actually staff, staff sort of safety and staff sort of happiness will be there, which again, that's a modern leader. You know, if you'd have talked to me literally 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been talking to you about, well, you know, mental health and staff well-being. Well, now that's a massive part of what I have to consider when I run all my businesses, really. I can see where you're coming from there, Ruth, because it's absolutely massive, isn't it? Because letting employees know that you care about them is one of the most important things in getting them to go on that journey with you towards a common goal with your business. And I think a lot of people, not every employer is a good employer. And I think there's a lot of employers out there who have used this as an opportunity to get rid of the deadwood. And I think a good sign of a leader, and this is quite interesting because I actually made somebody, I terminated somebody's probation as we went into this um, pandemic. But I know that he has no opportunity of going out there and getting work during this. So I've onboarded him again. And we furloughed him with clear instruction of what's going to happen at the end. And I think that, you know, I furloughed all my staff on 100% and I personally made the decision to do that 
because they have 100% of their bills to pay. What I have said to them very clearly is if this goes on for sort of four months, five months, or even a year, then obviously that decision has to change because my affordability has to change. But one of the biggest threats to a business is retention. And I've spent the last three years defining my staff retention, you know, moving from out of the city to into the city to even, you know, bad timing from a sort of planning point of view, but we had no idea. But I find new offices, I find a, a lease for new offices on the 1st of April, which again, the working conditions are amazing, but it's no good having working conditions and customers if I've got no staff to fulfill. So one of the things that I've been watching with eagerness on, on television and the news is actually how people have been treating their staff. Because I think when we reopen, all employers and all leaders out there will want to press the go button. But actually, you've got to remember that the people that are coming in, you need them motivated and focused and actually wanting to work with you, which again is why I've been communicating and keeping in contact with my staff and actually letting them know how the business is doing. I do that all the time, though. So when I talk about communication as a leader, mm. I believe in sharing. I meet a lot of people who won't talk about financial figures with the staff, but I believe that every year I set a plan, and at the end of the year, every member of staff is bonused on that plan, in addition to their packages. And if we get there as a team, then we celebrate as a team. Mm. And that comes into this situation because my staff have an expectation of understanding. And I don't mind my staff questioning me because I think that's actually a healthy situation of how's the business. You know, I furloughed a member of staff a young chap called Jack who has only been with me six months and he said, is everything okay? And I haven't, I don't really know him that well. And I took half an hour to talk to him and said, absolutely, mate, because if I've got the confidence to make sure that this, I would tell them mm. if we weren't doing very well because they would pull harder to get us there. Um, so how people treat their staff during this period will massively impact on what happens when they get back into the workplace. I think that's absolutely right, because you hear a lot of great stories at the moment um, from staff who've been working from home, but also those who've had Mm. to go on site that have really just got their head down and mucked in throughout this entire situation. And it's because they are benefiting from a good company culture, they're being communicated with, and they have good leaders above them who are showing that they care about them throughout this whole thing. And you're more than likely to get more out of them, aren't you, in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I think I work um, across a number of sectors in the consultancy, and one of the sectors is the British holiday park industry. And obviously that has been, well, they were closed down. And it's quite a, when I say a dire situation, I don't mean that the parks are in a dire situation, because obviously they've planned the cash flow and so forth for this eventuality. But the staff, what's quite interesting is that all of the owners have gone back to basics. So they're the ones that are out there cutting the grass. They're the ones that are out there doing the maintenance. They're the ones that are out there. And I think that's the key thing in my business. Believe it or not, I own an IT business, but I know nothing really about IT. But what I can do is I can ensure that if my seniors have to go on site, which I've actually banned on site visits, but if they have to, because some of our customers are supplying PPE and other things to hospitals, then they are fully protected. And when we're talking about planning, as a leader, it is actually about looking at not just what's going to happen when we open, not what just happens after the three months, which is why already I've put in quite a substantial order uh, for PPE for my staff. And I'm not talking about gowns and things like that, but masks and um, gloves and hand sanitizer. And we've put that in in preparation to make sure that my staff are prepared because I wouldn't ask them to do something that I wouldn't do myself. Mm. And some people might think that's old fashioned, but I think when it comes to the health factor, um, it's quite interesting. I, I went, I had to do some shopping on uh, Saturday 
and I, 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 it was well over £100, so I had to use a chip and pin, and I'd got gloves on, but I just thought in the normal day, none of us actually consider how many people touch that pad. So it will change the way we think, and it mm. will change the way that we work. But again, talking about leadership, I've already identified that as something that needs to be done, therefore that when we open, we're prepared and my staff are protected from day. Exactly. And um, being sort of ready to um, adapt is um, going to be hugely important. And it was yeah. an interesting point that you mentioned, Ruth, about being essentially willing to do every task that you would ask of your staff as well, because that comes down to something called humility, doesn't it, as a leader? And that, yeah, again, absolutely. is so, so important in leading by example. But that is it. I mean, and, and that, that word's incredibly important, you know, and we have to keep perspective. And I think that's a key thing as a leader. I have, I've been called fearless many times, but of course I've got fears. Of course I worry. Of course I've got all the concerns that everybody else has got, but that actually should come into your mindset when you're thinking about your staff and how you run your business. You know, the other word as well is compassion. I run a business that other be- I rely on my customers to pay me, but also I have to supply. And one of the things that we had to make a decision about early on was the commercials around that, you know, IT doesn't particularly sound sexy, but it's a commodity now. You know, whether you've got your antivirus to stop, um, well, it's it's thriving at the moment with online um, cyber attacks, whether Mm. you've got your backup, because it's a common fact that if a business, you know, suffers a a backup uh, issue and loses all the data, they will go, 75% of them go bust. And I've had to sit there and think we support a lot of SMEs. And do we actually continue to pay forward for the services if they don't pay us? And the answer, that's word there, compassion is massive. And actually, what you'll see out of this environment is good leaders collectively getting together. Leaders care. Leaders believe in what they do, and actually they suffer no fool. So the bad businesses who entered this, who had no cash flow and didn't even have you know, the money to cash flow themselves for a month, they're not the people I'm talking about. Leaders within communities will ensure that businesses, and as you've seen on, with the press, with all the charity and all the giving, actually survive. And that's a massive sense of community, that from a leadership. Um, and I think that, you know, your staff have to understand that. And to work for a, a company in an environment where you're led by somebody who has those morals and those values is massive. It's so important. I think you're absolutely right in saying that. And um, if we think about the uh, the future um, as well, though, Ruth, before we do wrap yeah. things up on uh, today's programme, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for both of your businesses and what you do hope to achieve, not just in getting through the pandemic, but also your ambitions for beyond that as well. Okay. Well, my ambitions are very simple. That They are what we, what we set out to do last year, the year before, which is to grow. I think... Being realistic, what I'm fearful of for other businesses, which I'm combating in my business, is actually pushing back debt. I've had a very varied career, um, varied in industry and varied in positions and actual work type. And my background when I started um, years ago was finance. So I was part of the unfortunate credit crash in 2008. It didn't affect me financially and I'd already moved out of that industry. But I'm fearful of trading conditions such as that coming out. So mm. two things which massively impact, will impact on my business, which I'm planning for and everybody else's, is the fact that we are pushing. So there's borrowing, first of all. Um, I'm very fortunate. I've worked and sold and done all weird and wonderful things in my career. So at the point that I open these businesses, there's no debt. 
So we've actually been fortunate to be awarded um, an interruption loan to ensure that we've got cash flow. But what I've decided to do is take the loan to ensure that it's almost the buffer zone, which is what we need. But actually, because of the terms, I'll pay it back in 12 months if we've uh, if we've not utilised it. But I don't think every company will be in that position. I think that if there's funding there available, that is massively important. But I think an element of financial planning, so pushing your VAT back, pushing your PAYE back, pushing your self-assessment back. I think that if businesses don't plan properly, the leaders aren't, don't have the right commercial thinking that that, that will actually push the financial stability back for six months, for 12 months, because that debt's got to be paid at a certain point. So I think the first sort of part of the strategy is surviving, which obviously everybody's going through at the moment. And then when we get back, I think the next stage of it will actually be the most difficult because how are we going to, you know, get used to being normal, you know, me traveling from where I live on a train, me, you know, my staff going out. How are we going to cope with that? How are people going to cope working at home longer term? Because it definitely has a mental impact. And then obviously all the business, um, all the business issues, such as trading, such as potential loss. So a few things that I've done in my business already. Obviously, I've refreshed all my budgets and my cash flows. Um, I have gone through all of my customer list and looked at all my bad debts pre um, COVID-19 and remove those customers because it's no good setting what I call hypothetical growth. Um, I've planned and reviewed and actually taken this time to do all the jobs that actually I've been waiting to do and never had the time to do. But the one thing that is very important because I think leaders have to be positive, not not sort of stupid, but really commercially tuned in. I actually see this as an opportunity. Because I think that there will be a lot of customers out there who will have been failed by one of the suppliers, mm. and that's an opportunity. Um, I actually see it as an opportunity for mergers um, because there'll be some of my customers will be out there and they will not have done the cash planning. They won't have had the cash reserve out there. I was taught at an early age by a mentor, six months personal, three months business, and I'm talking about cash flow. So I've always worked to those um perimeters and I think there'll be people out there who haven't done that and therefore that's an opportunity to acquire or merge um, and I think an important thing and this is a really important thing is over the years we've stopped communicating as effectively as we were um, if you'd have asked me six months ago every time my phone rang not necessarily work because I like to talk at work but a family member ringing me I think oh just text me or whatsapp me and now every day I FaceTime my parents I FaceTime my friends. Our video conferencing is amazing. You know, we use Teams. That's amazing. And I actually think when we reopen, I think I'm going to use a word which is grateful. I think everybody will be grateful for the things that we took for granted before. And I think that will impact on the quality of life. And quality of life, you know, I think that if we're happy, we perform better. And actually, if we perform better, it makes us happier. So as much as it impacts on people in their private life, I think socially, I think people, staff will come back to work and we'll be more thankful and grateful for the environment we worked in as long as your employer treated you well before. Mm. I certainly see where you're coming from, Ruth, because it is changing times uh, socially and also in the way that we do business. And you are right in saying that there will be opportunities from this for business because there will be more market capital available. And therefore, um, businesses have to adapt and to innovate to be able to seize upon those opportunities as best as they can. Um, 
Yeah, we are just about um, out of time on today's programme, unfortunately. Um, But what I think would be amazing, Ruth, for the listeners is if once um, we start to see the fog lifting in the next few months, we could perhaps even have you back on the air with us just to catch up on how both of the businesses are doing, but also just look at how those changes that we've talked about today are being borne out in reality. Um, But I've got to say for today, it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the programme. And Thank thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. That's my pleasure. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, Ruth. Thank you. Great. Listen, if you need anything else, just let me know. Because I do I do loads, I mean, I know it's leadership. It's quite interesting because I'd have loved to have had a conversation if we weren't going through COVID-19. Yes, absolutely. I, I say businesses that are going bust and 90% of the time it's because of poor leadership. Mm. So if you need any more content, just let me know. Yeah, I think we'll definitely be looking um, to do that in the future, Ruth, for sure. Um, That was Ruth Badger um, of Ruth Badger Consultancy and Everything Tech Limited. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Um, Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. That would be the trade body for firms who provide investment management and financial advice services for both individuals and families. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz. And that's coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may, is maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the, uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is, are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they, they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face-to-face or whether that is um, online, uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's it's very challenging um, to um, 
kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you um, because it is quite a complex arena. And that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post-Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, yeah, maybe, Lizzie, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. <laughs> occurring at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because... Uh, I, th- I think it's 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, it, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go- it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also mm. quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or, you know, that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our yes. um, in our country. Without a doubt, Liz, because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as um, 
uh, for example, uh, with, with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, uh, uh, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of... Uh, the system, but ti time will tell, and that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz. Yes, but I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um, now, looking at, at a couple of the points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seems as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a, a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, left the European Union. Without, without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, uh, Liz, is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more, far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next 12 months? Um, I think I think that, that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst you know 31st of January came and went, um, you know we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period, um, and for for UK um, savers and uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Europe, in Europe, England, or U the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of in intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that uh, and of course you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yes, the same do, piece you know <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they, indeed um, absolutely absolutely so we've still got to wait and see i think it, absolutely um and it will be a uh, interesting year if nothing else 
Um, yeah. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, uh, PIMFA has uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA. Um, are they, at the moment, doing their job correctly? Um, I think part... I th- I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate, um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that you know we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or you know the lifeboat funds to pay you know recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays, but. The polluters have, have long since folded by the time it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which we... Um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe, FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process. And we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I, I know there's no such thing as a, a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if, let's imagine, let's, let's imagine you did have one, just for, the, just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system and perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I would, my number one priority to, to solve the system. In terms of reform. In terms of reform, what regulatory yeah, reform, yes. you mean? Um, I think, oh, goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is, gosh, yes, wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected 
and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them. And what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now, I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at um, uh, the operations of PIMFOR again. It's What PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with with the departments and the organizations that you do have no i don't i, I think it's absolutely fundamental um to any business actually mm. but it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the values that we have as an organization. We, we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt. And I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or, or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think and because of the time here, we, we, I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask, Liz, looking forward, and I know the next 12 months is full of uncertainty, what are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we 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 have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter um, and what does what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward. But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it, um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is is just. Um, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be uh, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future all of those things, and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. 
Um, but it's been <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.